Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Uh, I'm the host of the radio show, Everything Co-op. This morning, we have a wonderful panel of folks on from Los Angeles. Uh, we have Dr. Chris Tilly, who is the chairman of the Urban Planning at UCLA. And they did a study of Crenshaw. Crenshaw is in South Central L.A. Forty uh, percent of the residents of Crenshaw are black Americans, African-Americans. And they did a study on that, and we're going to talk about that. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. Good to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. So you're here with three of your students. Correct, yeah. So what is what is the urban planning? What is this class about? This is a class called Community Collaborative. And Community Collaborative is a model that we've been doing for over 30 years in one form or another in uh, urban planning. On, on one level, it is a capstone class for master's students in urban and regional planning to demonstrate their competency. But that's only one of the two agendas. The other agenda is to work with community members to address their problems, to analyze them, and to come up with strategies. And what's unique about the class is that it includes community members as equal participants. So in addition to 10 UCLA students, there was a dozen community members from Crenshaw, activists and and folks from different walks of life who were involved. Fantastic. I think I would like to have been in that class as a student or an activist. Okay, so why did you choose this project in, in Crenshaw? Well, every year we look for what would be a good community project to do in the community collaborative. At the time I was looking, Crenshaw was in the headlines. Uh, an organization called Downtown Crenshaw Rising was bidding for the Crenshaw Mall, which was basically being sold. And 43-acre premier mall serving L.A.'s black community, these folks actually made the highest bid but got turned down. They talked about it as uh, 43 acres in a mall with the goal of, of doing community control, co-ops, affordable housing, using this land for community development, not just for profit. Well, they didn't make it. It got given to somebody else who bid less, but the bank sold it to them anyway. But... The more I talked to the folks who were involved, the more I saw that there was a lot going on. It was not just about the mall. It was about housing. It was about cooperatives. It was about community building. And so I thought this would be a really exciting project for the students. 40 acres and a mall as opposed to 40 acres and a meal. And I did visit that mall and met with some of the people at downtown Crenshaw Rising. So... What did you expect the students to learn in this project? The most important thing that the students should be learning for this kind of project is just how to work with people in the community. They may call themselves urban planners. They may believe in community participation, but actually doing it is something different. So, so yeah, I mean, they learned about 
cooperatives. They learned about affordable housing. They learned, learned about community land trusts. There's a lot of professional things they learned, but the most important thing is how to work with folks from the community. How to work with people. Okay. Mm-hmm. And did you have any concerns about this report, about doing this report? Well, I knew it was a big job. I have never taught the community collaborative before. I'm a big booster of it, but it's one thing to uh, to tuck it up. It's another thing to do it. And it's the kind of project where until the very end, you're never quite sure how it's going to come together. And so you're the chair of the department, and you've never taught the class before. <laughs> I've always managed to get someone else to do it. <laughs> okay. It was my turn. So in reading the report, and it was a wonderful report, I, I saw it was talking about making sure that the community had control and black self-determination. Did that come from the department or from the community? Well, the initial impulse came from the community. When we approached the community and said, you know, what kind of project do you need? They said their number one concern was increasing community control and black self-determination, black sovereignty over a predominantly black community. Did they have any other concerns? Well, perhaps the biggest concern of almost every community in Los Angeles right now is gentrification, displacement, lack of housing affordability, and Crenshaw is getting hit very hard by that. A new subway line is going through, and unfortunately, that tends to be accompanied by gentrification. And this is all a part of urban planning, though. Gentrification, you've got to deal with it in every urban world today, it seems like. It's a central issue for urban planning. Okay. And I guess there's also a need for jobs. Absolutely. I mean, in black communities, there's an issue of, of unemployment, but also issue of, of job quality. And so that was part of the charge for this project was to look into creating jobs, high quality jobs, and to investigate cooperatives as a strategy that would maintain and build community control at the same time as creating jobs. Thank you very much for that intro about this particular project. So now I want to go to Eliza Jane Franklin. Eliza, uh, I want to talk to you about the housing aspect of this. First of all, yeah. uh, where are you from? I'm originally from Alabama, uh, Ufala, Alabama, to be exact. But I currently live in Los Angeles, um, and I'm a native of South Los Angeles or South Central Los Angeles. Okay, is that so? Is that where you grew up in South Central? Yes. Okay, and so you're in the master's program. Are you in urban planning? Correct. I have my own independent area of concentration: critical race studies, digital mapping, and Heritage conservation. Heritage conservation. Okay, so we're going to talk about housing in in that context. <laughs> yes. Um, so homelessness, houselessness is a big issue in Los Angeles. So in this in in this Crenshaw community, what are you what are you trying to do to address homelessness? Okay. Well, first off, I want to say that the demographics right of the Crenshaw area, forty um, percent are black. And the median income is $51,238, right? Um, and 64% of the population is renters, right? In comparison to Los Angeles, where only 8% of the population is black and their median income is 71000 right? That's almost a $20,000 gap. 
and 54% of LA's demographics are uh, renters. And so um, when we looked at this Crenshaw region, we noticed there was a massive amount of houselessness, right? When we talk about houselessness, this is the issue that should be approached from a, a standpoint of dignity, right? Considering that anyone is a paycheck away, right, from being houseless. And so we looked at several different models and tiny homes is something that had been thrown out there, but tiny homes are inhumane, right? And so for this area, we looked at the LA CAN model as our recommendation. And what that consists of is more of an echo hood community aspect, right? Um, these will be about 100 to 150, uh, 400 to 500 square foot places. And these would include like energy efficient performance features. Um, they'll have a shower, a fully functioning kitchen and a living room, right? So it gives more of this model of you're houseless, but you now have a place that feels more like home, right? Versus mm -hmm. being thrown in a box with poor ventilation and it's called a tiny home. So we were also thinking Wait, that- Excuse me a second. Where would you get the land to put these homes on? That's a good question, right? And we looked at several open spaces that were considered, um, are still being considered, but a lot of that is being left up to the Liberty Community Land Trust, right? And that's something that they would deal with. This is just our recommendation. We don't have anything concrete yet, but we did look at several open space areas. So the community could buy the land on these open lots. Did you find it whether the city owned any land that you could approach them to donate the land for these projects? Due to time restraints, we didn't um, lock down an exact location, but this is an ongoing project, as you stated, and so we're continuously working towards that. And so what's the reason or why you want community land trust? Why would you put forth those? Well, first off, um, community land trust, for those who don't know, right, because we hear this word often, they're nonprofit community-based organizations, right? And when we talk about Crenshaw, this is the area that is community-based, right? Everything that we do has the lens of community and maintaining the Black identity within that community, right? And giving people the autonomy and the ability, right, to be able to have this independence as it pertains to home ownership and land ownership. And so with these community land trusts, they give the, res the residents, right, the opportunity to be able to build wealth, right? So they're able to purchase the building on the property, right? Um, because the community land trust, essentially, you don't have to go through the bank, right? You go mm -hmm. through community land, they own everything, everything is in-house. And it makes it easier for the residents to actually um, be shareholders, um, community shareholding, community land trust, same thing, interchangeable, um, goes hand in hand. And ultimately, the community land trust, they offer this opportunity for the communities to take back, right, to take back their communities during this time in which gentrification and speculative um, housing practices are displacing them. Right. So community land trusts are are huge. They're in most communities now, although in yes. the 60s, we didn't know about them. There was a group out of Alabama uh, with Shirley Sherrard and her husband went to Israel to learn about community land trust. And I believe they started the first one, community land trust in, in the U.S. So it's a big one. And, and by the way, Shirley Sherrard, if you don't know about her, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Jane, she's out of Georgia and she's one of my my heroines. 
but prices are going, uh, houses are going up fast. And how do you identify those houses so you can get them into the community land trust or get them purchased? Okay, you are right. Houses are going up, 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 right? And income is going down, 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 at least in Los Angeles, right? The uh, job market. But with that being said, the housing group per se, um, and specifically Brian Ramirez, was able to come up with this tool called the chat tool, right? And this is a tool to help combat against speculators. And so essentially, community members... Um, it's, it's like an in-house model, right? As soon as property they know is going to be going up, whether commercial or residential, they have this tool. It's a Google form. They go in there. They input the information as far as the value of the property, um, the location, the address. Um, and this this uh, is accessible to people within the community so they can go forth and they can potentially prepare to purchase the property in advance of the outside entities, right? Okay. Um, that's one of the things. And then also they have the property acquisition tool. So which actually after the property Elizabeth, is... Elizabeth Jane, we're going to come back. You're so excited. I hate to okay. stop you right now. But we're going to take our first break. We'll be right back. We've heard from Dr. Tilly and, and Jane. Elizabeth Jane, and so we'll be right back and talk to the other students, and we'll finish up talking with her. Please don't touch that down. Your news talk station. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Cooperative, and we are with Dr. Tilly and three of his students on urban planning, and they were working with the community in a community collaborative, which is a capstone uh, course for this for the master's students and right before we took the break we were talking to Eliza Jane and she was talking about housing and you gave us one example of C-H-A-T-T chat to identify houses early on and the community members either through the land trust or uh, any other vehicles could buy that property before the speculators came on. So Eliza, uh, that's what you were talking about. Can, you were getting ready to tell us about another example before we took break. What was the other example you were talking about? Um, the other example uh, is the property acquisition summary. Um, and this is essentially a summary sheet, right? That can be filled out to outline the financial details of acquiring property and converted it uh, to the into the community land trust, right? So after the property has already been obtained, right? Um, this is just able to keep track of what it looked like financially, fiscally, like the land value um, and, and what it looked like um, as it was acquired. Okay. Paperwork, paperwork, paperwork. Fantastic. <laughs> on top of it, on top of it, on top of it. Now, how did the community... Uh, Chris had talked about earlier, this is 10 students and a dozen community members in the class, but then you would go out and talk to other community members. So in this part of the uh, research, how did, how did you guys get the other community members involved? Well, during this time, before the class even began, like officially, we went through various case studies we had looked at, right? So that affected how we engaged um, and we went forward. And so community members, they are uh, feet on the ground, per se, right? So we would meet once a week. We would get together, have our game plan, revisit it over and over and over, and they would just essentially go out. They were already there, you know, um, and they would aid us in directing us 
as far as entities or individual persons that will be assets for us to speak to um, and garner knowledge in regards to our research. So you just went out and talked to people? We went out and talked to people. That's the best way, right? Okay. That's yeah. the best way to get out and talk to people. We essentially, we had read enough, right? <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're using what you read. You're taking the research, you're taking the knowledge, and you're going out and talking to people. So you're, you're putting it into action right away. That's what you're doing. Correct. Okay. <laughs> yes. did, did you enjoy that? When I say it was amazing, it's nothing like hearing from a person, right? How they are being impacted. Like it's one thing to read on paper about how people are being displaced, but to hear a person, uh, one of the individuals was Reggie Reg, and he had been a community member for 60 years. And he was excited to talk to me because he said he was the only person in his family that hadn't went to college. I said, well, you're going to go because you're going to be on the uh, UCLA document <laughs> alongside Crenshaw, downtown rising. But he spoke to how he had been pushed out of his community. Right. And he was on the outskirts and somewhere where he felt like he did not belong. And that dog parks were replacing actual parks um, for the people. So mm. hearing that from a person, it, it affects you different. It gives you and more momentum to keep going because now you have this space to say, this is who's being affected by this, right? Amen. Driving down Crenshaw, if you look within the report, you'll see a person I saw not one day, not two days, but several days when I drove down Crenshaw sitting there with a plastic bag wrapped around their body, right? You can find that within the report. And so when you see these type of things, you have these type of personal impactful moments, it really propels you to um, dig deeper and do the best work you can do. This is people's work we're doing, Amen. right? This is people's work. I got it, sister. With that, I'm going to go talk to Jeffrey. Jeffrey Gusoff is a medical doctor who is also working on urban planning. But Jeffrey, you're a medical doctor with an MBA. You got both of them together. Why are you interested in this work? Yeah, good morning. Great question. Um, so I'd say that I'm a primary care doctor. I work for the county of LA. And when I see patients come into clinic with high blood pressure, diabetes, we're increasingly realizing that that's oftentimes a consequence of housing insecurity, food insecurity, job insecurity. But we don't often ask why are people job or housing or food insecure? And I think that co-ops talk to that question. And I think, you know, you've had Edward, Ed Woodfield on the show. He says, you know, what's, what defines these, sy these systems is who owns and controls basic resources. And that's what co-ops address. So the idea, you know, a lot, a lot of my public health research is about cooperative ownership. And what I found in that research is if people cooperatively own their food system or if they cooperatively own their workplace, they have more stable wages, they have wealth building opportunities, they have all these factors that lead to their health becoming better. So I think this is an area we need to focus more on in terms of public health. Oh, I'm so glad to hear you say those things, Jeff, because that's the reason we have this radio show, to get people to understand what co-ops do for individuals and communities and families. Yeah, it's phenomenal. And you came about it from a medical doctor's perspective to how do you solve health issues before they happen. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, and I, th I think that like a lot of our work as healers, as physicians, is to figure out what are the systems behind the symptoms. And I think that we need to do that work with these things like food and housing insecurity. If someone comes in with cough, we don't just say, you have a cough, we're going to give you cough traps. We say, what's the system causing that? And I think when we see people come in with housing insecurity and job insecurity, we got to figure out what's the system behind that. And that's what we're trying to do with downtown Crenshaw on this project. 
Okay. You got me almost speechless because you have you have capitalized in one sentence or one paragraph the whole reason for my existence today um, and the reason for this show. And you've come about it from a medical standpoint. I got into it from an economic standpoint. I was managing housing co-ops in the Washington, D.C. I was managing limited equity housing co-ops, and I watched everyday people at best a high school education make very intelligent decisions, and they had control over their space. They had control over their life. Uh, so, yeah, you, you have got it. So was this research and project successful, and if so, how? So I think that, you know, this original step, as Eliza said, there's kind of an ongoing component to this, but I think the original step was successful primarily because community members have been kind of guiding the work and telling us what would be helpful. And then we readjusted and, and kind of tried to focus the work every time where it would be most effective. But I'll say that the true success of the project is still yet to come. It's still unraveling. I'm continuing to be involved with the worker co-op kind of group of downtown Crenshaw. And just yesterday we talked to, uh, people from Madison based on some of the advocacy research that we did. So this is still evolving and the success is still to be had, but I think initially it's it's been a very positive thing. So when you say Madison, you're talking about Madison, Wisconsin? Exactly. Learning yeah. from their system of advocacy and city support for the co-op work there. City support. They gave, uh, I think, a million dollars a year for five years. Uh, they put in their, in their budget, uh, Madison did, to help to create worker co-ops. So that's a good place to go. But you talk about cooperative developer in, in your report. So what is a cooperative developer? Yeah, in general, a cooperative developer is an entity that helps to create a cooperative and provides technical assistance and other resources. In the context of Los Angeles, we realized that a cooperative developer had to be much more because unlike a Madison, unlike other places that have more developed cooperative ecosystems, LA has a pretty young and undeveloped co-op ecosystem, despite the phenomenal efforts of, of several folks here, it just hasn't had the critical mass. And so in LA, a cooperative developer means someone that helps develop a cooperative and at the same time helps develop a cooperative advocacy program, at the same time identifies cooperative financing resources at the same time helps educate people like this show is doing about what is a cooperative and why should I even think of that if I'm trying to start a business. And so I think the cooperative developer in LA, we talk about it as making the road by walking, really has to kind of carry all those pieces at once and be a cooperative ecosystem builder. Make the road by walking? <laughs> okay. You make a path first <laughs> through the bush? <laughs> okay. And growing up in Bluefield, we did that. And then after you make a path, then you end up with a road and then sometime you come and pave it. Okay. Mm -hmm. I, I think I was maybe 14 before they paved our road in Bluefield, but I, I got what you mean. You make the road by walking. Finance, training, technical support. Your developer does that. It, it um, figures out uh, legal, how you start one. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that uh, I put in the um, ecosystem, I added promotions, uh, PR, because most of the co-op ecosystems don't do a very good job of telling the world about the benefits of co-op that you said so well, Jeffrey, in your first paragraph, all of the benefits that it does for an individual or a community. So that, that's your cooperative development. What lessons did you learn that you can use it for the rest of your life in doing this project? Yeah, absolutely. I think that a huge lesson for me was that you have to build something. I think that in our research role, we are often kind of 
and especially with super complex issues like this, we don't want to get it wrong. We want to build it perfectly and you can spend forever trying to get it perfect. And, you know, I think that there is this idea of if you build it, they will come. And if they don't come, then you rebuild it and you keep on trying to find ways to make it work. And I think that that's what's happening right now at downtown Crenshaw. They're starting a cooperative as we speak. Things are going well in some ways. Other things are challenging. You have to readjust, but I think you have to just do the work and then let the research inform the work and how you rebuild. Don't wait to do all the research before you actually start to build something. So we're going to take our second break. Uh, when we come back, Jeffrey, I'd like for you to tell us a little bit about the co-op, the worker co-op that you all are working on. And then we're going to go to Ernest uh, to talk about environmental justice and transportation. Uh, so we will be right back. Please don't touch that dial. Your news talk station. Welcome back, everybody. We were talking to Jeffrey, the medical doctor, which we're going to go back and talk to him about the worker co-op that they are developing in Crenshaw right now. But first, I want to give a shout out to the National Cooperative Bank. You know, they've been our main supporter for the last nine years. NCB's mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities. Now, Crenshaw has a like $51,000 median family income in Crenshaw. And the U.S. says that $27,000 is where you're in poverty if you're $27,000 or below for a family of four. And so you say, oh, in Crenshaw it's $51,000, but the cost of living is so much higher in Los Angeles, particularly housing. So that's still a low-income community, and with 40% of that community is black. So NCB provides uh Financial services, innovative financial services, they have to be innovative to finance co-ops. And I can see them being a very big partner in developing Crenshaw. Uh, so, Jeffrey, let's go back and talk some more about, I want to really, what is the worker co-op that you're all developing, name and product? So the uh, downtown Crenshaw is working with this organization, the co-op developer called Works, and they are developing a cooperative that's a bakery cooperative. But bakery kind of broadly defined actually has kind of things like pizza and is almost like a restaurant model based on the Arismendi cooperative model up in the Bay Area. So they've learned a lot from what's happened up there. And importantly, the jobs at that cooperative in, in the Bay Area, people are making uh, more than $50,000 a year, sometimes sixty dollars or $70,000 a year as bakery uh, owners. And so these are kind of high-wage, high road jobs and also several of them. So about 12 people, I believe, uh, work at those bakeries on average. And so it's able to create a fair amount of uh, good wage jobs. What they're also doing as developing this bakery is that each worker owner at the bakery is also being trained to be a future co-op developer for additional co-ops. So it's not just mm -hmm. focusing on this co-op, but it's creating a platform for further co-ops to be built out. Fantastic. You may not know this, but in Italy, uh, there's a bakery inside a prison. Okay, so the, the, the bakery has members outside the prison and inside the prison such that uh, members that are inside the prison, when they leave, they already have a job. They are a member. They have ownership. They have a family. They have community. And so their recidivism rate is 3% versus 60 70% here in the U.S. 
Innocent Bakery. And the the year I found about this them about four or five years ago, they had won a prestigious award for baking, and it may have been the, you know that long Italian bread. I don't know what it was, but they won. And they were extremely proud of, of winning this award in a bakery in a prison. So there's a lot we can do with co-ops. Uh, bakery is, is extremely interesting. Have you ever thought, Jeffrey, of starting a co-op clinic? They have one in Madison. Yes, yeah, so the area that I'm looking most into now is actually how co-ops can be helpful for low-wage healthcare workers, particularly home health aides, licensed vocational nurses, because those are the folks that I think are being most exploited by the current healthcare system, and the patients are suffering because they're getting kind of lower quality care from high turnover. So this question of how uh, you can have a cooperative, a worker-owned home health setting like they have in the Bronx at Cooperative Home Care Associates, how that model could spread more broadly, provide both better care and also better jobs for people providing essential care. So CDF, Corporate Development Fund, uh, cdf.coop, uh, you could go there and look. They, they have a conference every year for home health care workers. And the, the co-op in the Bronx and some of these other home health care workers are coming together to see how they can get uh, Medicare, the federal government, to increase the salary for these home health care workers. Because right now that it gets to be the limiting factor. Exactly. Uh, the home health care workers in a co-op makes more money than a home health care worker that's not in a co-op because they get to share the profit. And the co-ops are interested in three things. And then, uh, Ernest, we're going to come and talk to you. Uh, they call it three Ps. Uh, co-ops are interested in people first, the planet second, and profits third. Got to have profits, but it's people first, those employees in a worker co-op, the customer, and then the planet, the environmental kinds of issues which some of the things I think we're going to talk to Ernest about. And we're capitalistic. We also have three Ps. And and I don't know, Jeffrey, in your MBA program, in mine, I didn't hear about co-ops, but I heard about return on investment. What's the return? All decisions were made on. What's the return on investment for the stockholder, that person that invested in it, uh, who may live in the community, may not. And their three Ps were profit first, profit second, and profit third. Okay. That's the whole, that's the scheme of it. They might be interested in the environment. They might be interested in their customers and their labor, but only interested in them and how can I play them as least as possible so that I can get the max out of them. So, Ernest, that's a great way to, to come and talk to you about environmental justice, which is one of the areas that you are concerned about. So you had something called a clean up, green up in your, in your package. What is that about? Oh, to put it in context, first of all, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, I'm Ernest Johnson, a second-year MERP, also doing the dual degree uh, in, as a JD candidate at the uh, UCLA Law, and I've applied to the public interest program, and my nexus in my research is environmental equity, environmental justice. To answer your question specifically, KUGU is, is an intervention that is community-oriented, community-driven, and it's meant to prevent the further concentration of environmental hazards in overburdened neighborhoods, reduce pollution, and help businesses clean up and green up their operations while retaining and creating more jobs in the neighborhood. It's uh, an equitable, it's an equity-driven strategy to cultivate healthier environments that are operated, controlled, and hopefully owned by community members. It is a facet of a green zone uh, intervention. I don't know if you're familiar with that either, but green zones throughout the state of California are areas that not only are historically polluted through multiple facets, whether it's urban heat island effects, uh, mortality deserts, food deserts, 
uh, these areas that have been historically deprived and excluded residents, whether they're in Boyle Heights, South Los Angeles, Richmond, California, these residents are now stating that these polluters not only shouldn't have rights to operate here, but now these same spaces should have an opportunity to be owned and then, uh, and then, yeah, and then driven by uh, community vision. So to answer your question uh, in, a, in a short fashion, Kugu uh, <laughs> is a is a vision for a greener and healthier environment that is encapsulates a, a community vision. So I got that you are JD, dual degree in public relate and urban planning and urban, urban planning. planning. Okay. Yes, sir. Yes. All so right. my, uh, my concentration is environmental analysis and policy as well, as well as community economic development for the urban planning uh, portion of my, uh, of my discipline. I am really excited, uh, not only about co-ops, but to see you young people, whether it's medical or law or uh, how, whatever, whatever field you're also looking at this co-op and how do you help communities and, uh, and that focus as opposed to how do you just make money? But how do you help people? So I'm, I'm, I'm excited to, to meet you all, to talk to you all, and hopefully we can encourage other young folk to do the same kind of thing. So that's the clean up, green up. So how do you remediate vacant land? Uh, it's a beautiful question. <laughs> Just to give you, again, more context, I come from the Crenshaw District. I was born and raised off Crenshaw and Slauson. Uh, between Adams and Florence on Crenshaw Boulevard was is, was home for me for yeah for the majority of my life. Uh, one of the most prominent themes or trends, and I went to school in New Orleans, so I, I've and my family's from uh, Louisiana and Detroit. So one of the most prominent things that I've just noticed during my time traveling, especially in predominantly Black communities, is that areas lots are usually abandoned, where you'll have these. I like to call them blighted landlords who not only are not held accountable and making sure that their parcel is kept up to code, but inhibits some type of resource and is not just taking up space, right? So when you have these vacant parcels throughout the Crenshaw district, understanding what would be the best remediation policy or remediation strategy, it takes a lot of time and vision, you know, and, uh, one common intervention that we come across in our research is this idea of pocket parks. However, even though we know green space needs to be prioritized, these lots could also be so much more. So understanding that if the community is not vouching for a specific use on a lot that is not being taken advantage of, that is not being revitalized, then it's, again, it has the potential to flow into the speculators market that uh, my colleague Ms. Franklin was talking about. How do we remediate vacant land? First, we would, we would have to acquire it, right? And I think that's the beauty within regards to the Liberty Land Trust, understanding that the owner can't be someone who's moving from, you know, who lives in China or lives in Orange County or lives in some far out area, but it has to be locally driven ownership. Once you own it, then it's understanding that the space must be built in a environmentally conscious fashion okay. understand that the, for too long you can't use uh for too long we've used archaic materials that not only polluted our environment but pollute our families pollute the soil pollute the water and, and then understanding that the soil itself has to be examined to figure out okay this, if this space was historically holding oil 
right? Like they did in Ujima Village and Watts. This may not be the best location for affordable housing. So, so it's understanding that you have to be conscious in every decision you make. And the best way to revitalize vacant land is to own it. And, 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 you, and I also read that you may use eminent domain to get the government to come in and and own it if somebody's not using it. I want to go, though, to food. You said you want to enhance food access. How? how? I want it to enhance food access? Mm -hmm. For sure, for sure. So in the Crenshaw District, there is an area off Crenshaw and Slauson where a, a commercial grocery used to be. And that grocer vacated the space because it wasn't – uh, providing some level of economic thrivance. And it made that decision, one, without taking into consideration the families it was already supporting through employment as well as through resources. So now it's time for us as planners to collaborate with community and figure out how do we better encourage some level of sustainable economy, some level of uh, uh, sustainable resources. And there's, there's multiple ways to uh, inhibit high levels of food access, whether that is bringing in community farmers from throughout Los Angeles and cultivating a farmer's market, which is done, but doing that on a more frequent basis, um, exploring how the ice cream truck model might be able be, to be used as uh, a food health uh, a food health truck that just drives around, for, you know, allowing the, the consumption as well as the compensation of, of a healthy food. So it's understanding that we don't have to be dependent on the historic model of how food is distributed, understanding that each of us have a responsibility in it and trying to be creative in making sure that everybody has access to fresh produce and, and it's, and everyone has, everyone should have equal access to healthy resources is, is hopefully how we can cultivate a, a space where you all can live and thrive in. So I noticed one thing that was not in your report was, at least I didn't see it if you have in there with food co-ops. Food mm -hmm. co-ops have to do everything you just talked about. The business is owned by community members. Um, if it's a worker co-op, the employees own it, and they get to say what, what foods are on the shelves. Most of the time they're owned by the community, and the community says what food's on the shelf. And then when there's uh, profit or surplus, they get to share in that. And there's a hybrid, I think, in Seattle where it's owned by both the employees and the community. So there's different ways of providing that food through co-ops. We want to talk next about transportation. The two things that I have found that causes people to not be able to work, particularly women, are transportation and child care. I, I saw you talked about transportation. We're going to take our final break. And we'll come back and we'll talk, Ernest, some more about transportation. And then I want to talk about future to all of you all. We'll be right back, everybody. Your news talk station. Welcome back, everybody. Um, you know, Cabot Creamery, Cabot Cheese has started to support us financially. Uh, they supported us, uh, particularly uh, Roberta McDonald, in a lot of different ways through the years. But I just found out they have a uh, lactose-free cheese, no sugar in it, which I was really interested in because I'm lactose intolerant. Um, you don't want to be around me if I have something <coughs> with lactose in it. But they have some cheese that's lactose-free, and uh, get, maybe I can get back to, to eating cheese. Ernest, we were talking, I told you I want to talk about transportation. And so one of the first things you said in your report was community members should be a part of 
planning and designing transportation systems. Why is that so as an urban planner? One of the most recurrent themes in regards to urban planning, especially when we talk about the historical implementation of urban planning, is the exclusionary process between the how planning is cultivated for an area and the community it's impacting. Inclusive and embedded forms of planning not only have to be mandatory, but the main reason for that is so that communities are directly responsible for areas that they live in and how they are built and shaped. It's for too, for too long, you can't have planners come in and think they're bringing all the resources and bringing all the solutions without realizing that the strongest resource is the residents that live there. So uh, hopefully that, that answers your question specifically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the greatest planner is the pastor who's had a church there for 40 years, is the school teacher who is looking at these cars driving way above the speed limit during school hours, understanding where the best places for speed humps and stop signs needs to be, are those that immediately are the people who immediately engage with these spaces. So that is why inclusive embedded forms of planning must be held to the highest standard. Okay, and so what about if people can't afford the transportation? How do you handle that? So in Lamar Park currently, which is a part of the Crenshaw District, there is a community-driven e-transportation. There's an electric van that'll drive you, and I want to say about a mile, mile and a half radius, and it's, and it's free, that will take and everything in a mile and a half, hopefully. And, and that's the beauty. And that's the another thing about accessibility when we talk about equity, right? You can't just have resources sporadically distributed throughout an area or a city, but they have to be in direct proximity of those who need it the most, right? So that means that healthcare should be accessible. That means banking should be accessible. That means pharmaceuticals should be accessible. Education, the list could go on. So to answer your question specifically, there are community-driven models of transportation that are free. However, the capacity is not at the magnitude of which it's needed. So the build-out of that would hopefully be the, be the next step. So what was the hardest thing about this project for you? Personally, yes. the hardest thing was realizing that I'm not a community member in, these, in, that, in the space. You, you, understanding, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're not a community member in this space? I, I mean, I am, but moving as if I'm not, right? Like my, uh, I, I'm only here as an asset, as a tool for my neighbors. I'm not, uh... I'm I'm not a I'm not a neighbor in this capacity, right? I'm a planner in this capacity. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, before I started the program, I was on the community collaborative side when uh, before the, one of the previous collaboration projects was developing our sanctuary city policy. And realizing now that I'm a student, I had to prioritize listening more, oh. right? Even though that I may present certain de- levels of recommendation, and this is one of the main things that many planners do who not even come from the communities that they work in is understand that you just have to, you have to listen, uh, that your project is a reflection of who you're representing, not just you and prioritizing that and making sure that it's heard and it's cohesive throughout the whole document, not just in spits, uh, and, and parts of it and sparks of it. All right. You have to be listening as opposed to speaking as a, as a member, you're speaking as a planner, you have to listen. I got it. That was the so. Yeah. I want to go now to future. Eliza Jane, let's talk, start with you. What do you, how do you see this project working um, for Crenshaw in the future, particularly after COVID? And I want to ask each of you that question. 
Um, well, I see the project in the C3 document um, being a tool of empowerment, right, um, and a tool to be utilized and strategized in settings where policy is going, being set forth. Um, I think so often there's a lack of language and understanding of the fundamentals of what is affecting the community. And I feel like this document lays it all out, right? It's like foundational planning 101, right, um, for the Crenshaw community. And so it's, it, it gives the ability now that community members are able to get out more and that these uh, meetings are going forth, these plum meetings and so forth and so forth. They can go speak with their constituents and have this tool in hand to speak to in what ways they are being impacted, right? Um, versus just vaguely saying my rent went up, right? Um, that's not the language that these policy makers respect, nor um, that's not the way to address them. And so I think this tool going forward is going to be able to um, allow the community members to be more feet on the grounds within these meetings and these spaces and to hold their own, right? And have a tool that speaks to what they're saying to back it up. They can say, okay, turn the page, such and such of the document, okay? When there's like this vagueness within the room that's occurring. And so that's how I see it moving forward. Um, yeah. Do you see this tool helping um, COVID-19 is one of the pandemics? Another one that came out with George Floyd was racism. Do you see this tool helping with racism? I totally see this tool helping with racism. Uh, one of the things we did discuss was when we were talking about environmental justice, right? This idea of the community being impacted by mass incarceration, right? And we weren't able to effectively finish documenting that within this piece of legislation. But I think it's imperative that we note that the racism is prevalent because you see a demographic, right, that consists of the basis or the foundation for this community being erased, right? This erasure, this push out of them um, and not even their historical accomplishments being acknowledged in the built environment, right? So th there is a racism that this document speaks to and it, 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 hopefully we'll be able to be further built upon using like the chat tool and things such as that, which show the uh, turnover of property and what it looks like and who, who was in that space, right? And how this redlining has transitioned now to this speculative buying market, right? Okay. So Jeffrey, I want to ask you the same question about future. Using this information, how do you see it affecting the future coming out of COVID, particularly from a medical doctor's perspective? I think that COVID was a dual crisis or a triple crisis of you know health inequity, economic inequity, and, and racial inequity. I think that those things all existed. That they, That's what made COVID so particularly severe in the United States, and it's made those things worse. And I think in Crenshaw, the context right now is that those things are continuing to wreak havoc. And so the question is, like, what can we do moving forward? I think from the co-op piece, learning from kind of the community members and, and particularly uh, Nikki Okuk, who is the board president of downtown Crenshaw, a former worker, um, owned business owner and, and developer in the past. I mean, she talks about we need to create a Mondragon in South Central and we need to be ambitious about this. We can't have two or three co-ops that work for the people that work there. We need a new system, an economic system in place, and we need to build this out and it's urgent. And I think that that is the model that we need. Right now, there's a development model that's developing neighborhoods by displacing the neighbors. And we need a development model that 
is development without displacement and worker-owned co-ops and community land trusts are essential for that. And so that's, that's how we heal from COVID. We heal from COVID by changing the economic system that made COVID so deadly. And so that when the next thing happens, whether it's a recession or whether it's a pandemic or whatever it is, there's resilience that's built in and not just kind of worsening the already existing inequities. Thank you, sir. And I just, a shout out to Nikki. She's been on the program. People can look her name up on everything.coop as was her mother, Elizabeth Ryder, has been on the program, and they're fen phenomenal. We only have two more minutes. And I'm, Frederick, I re really want to hear your answer to this question. <laughs> I also want to hear Dr. <laughs> Tilly. But let me ask you from a legal standpoint, where do you see this coming out of uh, Ernest? I'll make sure I'm brief. When we talk about environmental racism, when we talk about communities that have been deprived access and resources for generations. It's, again, an, another thing is very imperative is that documents like these is a level of empowerment and it, it galvanizes a level of resilience that has been, again, deprived for many, uh, for many generations. I would hope that this document is the, is like the theoretical model of what a general plan or specific plan would look like for the Crenshaw district. We talk about general plans for cities. The community is not the driving force behind how that language is developed and presented. And I think that that process, that bureaucracy of how that usually occurs is significantly outdated and obsolete. And I, the, the Crenshaw community control plan is it, it steps in that direction. Let me yeah. let me get uh, Chris to just 30 seconds. What would you like people to leave with? What lessons would you like them to know? I actually want to quote Ernest, who said, when it comes to planning a community, the greatest resource is the community itself, the people in the community. That may not be news to a lot of people in the audience of this show, but it's news to a lot of people in power who are used to putting down those communities and ignoring them. And what we found is when we brought them to the table, incredible creativity, incredible capacity. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. Everybody out there, we're going to see you next Thursday. Please live cooperatively. Your news talk station.